I'm Nick Enfield. I'm a director of the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre, and I am here today with Amy Conley Wright, who is Associate Professor of Social Work and Policy Studies at the University of Sydney and Director of the Research Centre for Children and Families. Hello, Amy. Hello, Nick. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. So you are Director of the Research Centre for Children and Families. Can you tell us about the centre? Yes, uh, our centre um, has been around for, well, we, we first emerged out of the Institute of Open Adoption Studies, which was funded by New South Wales government as part of a set of reforms in 2014 uh, to change the foster care system or the out-of-home care system so that uh, children, um, that some of the statistics were that children were entering the out-of-home care system and they were staying for the whole of their childhoods. So the average length of stay was about 12 years. So the reforms that were undertaken in 2014 were about changing the nature of out-of-home care or foster care so that it um, became a shorter term experience so that children would transition to permanency, first of all, back with their families um, to reunification or restoration to their to their birth families. And if that was not possible, then to be adopted by their foster carers or uh, go into a guardianship arrangement with their uh, either foster carers or their relative carers who are called kinship carers. So as part of those reforms in 2014, the uh, New South Wales government uh, put some money aside towards research to look at the <clears throat> nature of these reforms um, and funded the Institute of Open Adoption Studies, um, uh, of which University of Sydney uh, was awarded the um, uh, grant with Bernardo's Australia. Um, and then in 2019, um, realizing that the scope of the work that we had been doing um, was broader than adoption and that because adoption has a very contentious and difficult history, painful history in Australia related to the stolen generations of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and also the forced adoptions which sort of emerged in the 50s, 60s, 70s uh, where there was pressure on unwed mothers to relinquish their children. Those very painful experiences um, and associations with adoption um, meant that the, the name was sort of a barrier around uh, engaging with people um, and also didn't reflect the true nature in terms of the, the scope of the work that we were doing. So in 2019, the University of Sydney approved the Research Centre for Children and Families. Um, and our mission is to, to look at um, sort of children within the context of their families and communities to uh, to strengthen those relationships and those um, to do research that goes towards um, uh, sort of keeping children connected to their families and to their cultures and to their communities um, and to address vulnerability for children and families. So um, it would be interesting to get a bit more of a concrete sense around what are the types of situations that are being addressed. So you named a couple of cases, um, the stolen generation history, uh, you know, you, you, you may want to say more about that um, and the the policies around or the pressures that that mothers came under, unwed or single mothers came under, um, you know, those are historical cases or historical kind of trends. Uh, clearly these, this kind of care continues now uh, and is going on now in Australia. So what are the kinds of situations that, that, you know, added to those ones that we that we're talking about here, where kids find themselves in, you know, needing to have uh, foster care. So the out of home care system, um, there are about, you know, eighteen thousand children, give or take, in New South Wales who are in the out of home care system. Uh, these are children who have been removed from the care of their parents um, by the Department of Communities and Justice, um, which is formerly known as families and communities, uh, as, and also formerly known as DOCS, you know, so it's had, a, it's had some change of its, of its own. Um, so they've been removed um, by the statutory authority, and also there's been a court process where the uh, courts have supported, you know, the removal process. It's quite a complex process, actually, and we have some figures on our Research Center website that sort of describe step-by-step step the journey of a child um, through the out-of-home care system, you know, which starts with an allegation of maltreatment to the hotline, uh, there's an investigation to see if there, if that allegation is substantiated, if there's evidence the child is being uh, maltreated. Um, and then there's decision-making that can go on. It, the child, um, the, 
the the system and in, in consultation with the family may determine through a family group conference that there's some way of keeping the child safe in their birth family with supports, and that's family preservation. Um, or a child might go down in their journey, might um, go down the pathway of removal. And so then if they're removed, they may be placed with their relatives, um, and it's kinship care, as I mentioned before, which can be formal uh, through the court system, or sometimes it happens more informally where families take in a member of their extended family. Or they can go into the foster care system, so that's where our foster care looks after the child. And again, the court's involved in terms of these decisions that are made you know, as sort of an outside um, source of accountability. And presumably police are involved in, in at least some number of these cases. In some cases, it depends on the particular circumstances, but there can be um, sort of joint investigations that go on with police. Right. So I, get, I, I gather or I imagine that there's quite a variety uh, within you know the, the the what you've just mentioned, I mean, eighteen thousand kids. That seems like a that's a shockingly high number to me. Not knowing anything about this 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 area, there must be a lot of variation within that. But but maybe just on that number, does that seem like a high number to you? It's, a, it's certainly a high number, and there's about fifty thousand children in Australia who are in the out of home care system. So if you look kind of across um, the country, and there are a lot of circumstances that bring children into the care system. Um, and there's a lot of concerns about the justice of the care system. So our research center was established to be independent of um, government. And so, you know, the research we're doing is sort of looking at these processes and including the fairness of processes that have been questioned by some groups in terms of overrepresentation of Aboriginal children, you know, being very overrepresented compared to their representation in the community. Um, and there are other concerns about, um, you know, removing children um, and the, the consequences of separating them from those relationships um, for all children, and particularly when for Aboriginal children that that can also mean separating them from their culture. Um, so it, it's a large number of, of children and families that are affected. And when you think about 18,000 and you think about 50,000, those are then the family networks that those children are part of. So it's a it's an experience that a lot of people have gone through. And it's, it's a very, it's a, a system that, that deals with a lot of pain because it's dealing with the challenges that are facing families. And the effort is to try to keep children safe. So can you maybe... Tell us about, um, you know, there's so many interesting topics within all of this and I want to come back to some of them. I mean, the matter of relationships, I think, is is clearly central to all this, so it would be good to, to discuss that. Perhaps before we do that, um, you have an ARC, an Australian Research Council linkage grant at the moment, um, Fostering Lifelong Connections. So perhaps you could just tell us about that, um, that sits within the, the research centre, I presume. So perhaps you could tell us about that and then we can open up some of those questions. That's right. So we have an Australian Research Council linkage grant um, called Fostering Lifelong Connections for Children in, in Permanent Care. Um, the co-investigators uh, with myself are um, Professor Judy Cashmore, who's with the law school um, and also a fellow with our research centre, um, Dr. Lynette Riley, who's... Um, uh, the chair for Indigenous Education, um, and also Dr. Susan Collings, um, and other members of our research team are part, of course, of, of delivering the program, including Sarah Chifty. Um, and it's a partnership with many organizations. Um, we have eight partner organizations, and it's a it's a project that's delivered across four sites in New South Wales. So we're working with um, partner organizations, uh, Key Assets and Bernardo's Australia in Sydney. We're working with Care South and Catholic Care Wollongong in the Wollongong area. We're working with Catholic Care Hunter Manning and Wesley Delmar in the Newcastle Hunter region. And in the Dubbo area, we're working with Uniting. And across all those four sites, we're also working with the Department of Communities and Justice, uh, New South Wales. So those are all organizations that have uh, case management for children who are in out-of-home care. They look after those children. And our project is focused on children who are in permanent care. So that means that uh, the judge has said basically that these children will remain either in long-term foster care, long-term kinship care, you know, or guardianship arrangements with a foster care or a kinship care or an adoption. They will not be returning to the full-time care of their parents. And so our project is about the relationships they maintain with those, with their family members, with their parents, with their siblings, uh, and with other relatives, grandparents, uncles, aunts, other people who are important for children. Um, the the court approves a contact plan with important relatives 
um, and can specify how frequently those visits happen, where they happen, how long they happen for. Um, and so this project is working with caseworkers about the practices that they use to support those relationships between children and their birth relatives when they will not be going home um, to those families to keep those relationships going because those relationships are of vital importance to those children. They're important to their identity and to understanding themselves, but there's also um, those relationships are important in themselves in terms of the the love and the care that children can derive from their relationships and connections with their family. So they also have, of course, their non-birth family relatives, the foster family relatives, the people that they live with. I presume that there's some tensions and there's some interesting uh sort of trade-offs in a sense between those various kinds of relationships. So you were just emphasizing relationships with birth families, important people in that side of things. To what extent does your work also deal with the relationships with the, the people who they're living with, the foster parents and, and are members of those families? That's right. It's really about the the two families that are around the child, you know, and you know, we sort of conceptualize this as two families that are joined by that child, where there's a shared love for that child. So our, our focus is really is about the relationship between the carer family and the, the birth family, um, so that that relationship can be positive and constructive as possible, so that there's understanding, there are issues like there's boundaries, so, you know, what is that relationship going to look like? How do we communicate with each other? How do we share information about the child? Do we post photos of the child on social media? There's a lot of discussion that has to kind of be worked out because um, it's, you know, they have, there's a shared interest in this particular child and there's two different kind of family dynamics. And so every family has their own dynamics. And the role of the caseworker is to try to, to make that relationship work as well as possible to help to mediate when there's conflict, um, to help to kind of set it on the right track. And a lot of the practices we're looking at are how do you really kind of support that relationship, nurture it, make sure that it is starting out in a positive way as possible um, because so that it kind of can continue on that positive trajectory over the course of the child's um, childhood and young adulthood and when they sort of then can take on that relationship themselves. Right. So um, I guess there are situations where people don't want to maintain that relationship. I mean, you must have a kind of some limits within that, that set of number of people where for the very reasons that the child was, you know, taken out of that original situation, you, you must have a subset of the, of the cases where contact with the birth family just can't take place. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and I think that's something also that with this research we can kind of try to understand better and what happens because I think sometimes people make assumptions that um, if mum or dad don't turn up for a visit, it's because they don't want to see the child, but often that's not what's happening. You know, there's enormous grief and loss in uh, being separated from your child. It's something that, you know, most of us as parents can't really imagine. So, you know, having the sort of regular visits and seeing your child cared for by someone else and having to recapitulate that loss through the process of saying goodbye at the end of a visit, it's understandable that some people just can't, are not in a place where they can engage and do that. But that doesn't mean that if they're not in place of doing that at a point in time, that won't change over time too. So it's about kind of keeping an open door to that relationship so that it can be re-engaged when the conditions are right. So to what extent does this, does your work and the way you conceptualize all of this overlap with the kinds of challenges that you have with divorce and with cases of families splitting and, and, you know, the matter of custody and so mm -hmm. forth. Yeah, there are some overlaps and then there's some distinct differences. So the custody isn't shared. So the custody is held either by the minister, so children who are in the care of the minister if they're in long-term foster care, long-term um, kinship care. If they're in a guardianship order, then the parental responsibility is held by the the carer of the child, who could be relative or foster care. And then if they're adopted, then it's held by the adoptive parent. So it's not a shared custody arrangement in terms of making joint decisions about the child, but it's, it is the shared relationship. You know, there's nothing that can erase the, the connection the child has to that family member, the love that's been there. And I think terminology, I know this is, you know, language is kind of your space. And I think a real challenge that we have is that people, we often use the term birth relative or birth family because that's 
the term that's used in the system, but we know that it's much more than that. You know, people have often been raising their children for a period of time. There can be a removal of a child at birth, but very often the parent has parented that child for a period of time. So um, we want to respect those relationships and also to know that this this connection will always be there. The child, will, in most cases, will want to know about this family member and may want to re-engage and have this relationship at a later point. So it's about keeping that relationship, um, preserving it on the benefit of the child, sustaining it for that child. So what's sort of the average age at which kids are being removed from their birth family care in this program? Uh, well, just for the state of, overall, um, it skews towards younger children in terms of the, the children who are removed from their parents' care. You know, so you sort of see quite young children and then sort of in the early school By years. By which you mean what, three or four? Oh, yeah, three could be, yeah. There are pre-birth notifications. Some children are removed at birth. Some children are removed when they're quite quite young, babies. Um, there's kind of a high rate of removal at that age. And then as children kind of enter school, again, you sort of have contact with mandated reporters or people who are required to report if they have concerns about maltreatment. And then you see also rights of removal at that age. So they would sort of skew towards younger children primarily. So you emphasized relationships and, you know, I can see why that would be your crucial emphasis and, and uh, for the work that, that you do. Can you say more about your concept of relationships and, you know, whether you're working with a particular framework around what a relationship is, how you would define it or whether you sort of decompose relationships conceptually in a certain way such that you can kind of, you know, work on those parts or is it a sort of holistic approach? How do you how do you think about relationships and such that you can actually work on them? Mm. Um, I think that part of the way I think about relationships comes from having talked to people who've been severed from their relationships and cut off from those relationships. So again, we have this we have the legacy of the trauma of the stolen generations in Australia and the incredible pain of being separated from your family members and not just your parents, but again, your siblings, your extended family members, um, and then the story of your family through the generations and your culture. So, and also talking to people who, who were separated from their families related to what are known as forced adoptions when there was a lot of pressure for young unmarried mothers to relinquish their children. So I think the pain of, of hearing from people what that loss has been like and from adopted people who have reflected on the loss of the relationship with their um, their mothers and their families, um, that has informed this, my thinking, you know, in terms of the need to preserve those relationships and to really invest in that um, and not sort of think about them as utilitarian in terms of, you know, this family can't look after this child for whatever reason, according to the courts, you know, they have got challenges, but they can have, there can be a lot of redeeming features in that relationship. They can still offer things to that child. It may not be day-to-day -day care, um, but it may be many other things in terms of their their love, their interest, their information. There's, there's a, way, a lot of ways that that connection can really be nurturing to the child um, beyond the type of daily caregiving that a, a parent you know, our caregiver gives. So what kind of measures do you have of whether things are working? Um, you know, I mean, I can imagine you might have some quite direct kind of short-term measures around whether birth family contact is going well, uh, you know, in specific instances of visits or sort of over a certain period of time. I can also imagine that you would have measures, you know, sort of longitudinal measures where you might talk to adults who once were in this program. I, I don't know kind of what type of longer-term data that you, you have. So can you talk a bit about the measures that, you, that you're working off? For this particular study for the Fostering Lifelong Connections project, we are, we are kind of trying to approach it in different ways. And I think we need to because relationships are really subtle things and they're so individual. So, um, you know, the measures we're using, we are looking at, we are doing some sort of pre and post surveys, talking to carers and to sorry, pre post, workers. Pre and post oh, sorry, pre and post surveys that are sort of asking people to rate their satisfaction with relationships, frequency, conflict, compassion, empathy, sort of some of those sort of basic um, elements of relationships, because you asked about before, yeah. what are the components of relationships? They include trust, empathy, um, 
you know, frequency of communication. So we were measuring some of those things. Um, we we're also having monthly engagement with the action researchers of our projects. So they're really the they're the people who are at the coalface. They're with our partner organizations. They are working with a caseload of families, and they are selecting a practice to trial for a period of time um, that is about strengthening that relationship um, between the child and their care and their birth families. That practice changes because we're doing this over a two-year period, but uh, for a six-month period, they'll they'll sort of try a particular thing with a su- with a, with all of their families or a subset of the families. And then we check in with them on a monthly basis. So part of what we're getting through that is case studies of sort of how trying a certain type of practice uh, changes the dynamic, you know, and then how you can kind of troubleshoot that. And if you try one thing, it may not work. And the colleagues who are also trialing that practice can help to brainstorm what what are some ways that that can be shifted, adapted to to try to strengthen that relationship with that family. So we are getting some sort of longitudinal data from those um, monthly meetings with the caseworkers. We're, we're hearing about their cases that they're applying this, this practice to. Uh, we will be talking to children and to family members. That's sort of the next phase of our research. We're going to be talking to children uh, to hear about their contact experiences what's important to them, and we have done some qualitative research like that already, and then also to um, to birth relatives to talk to them about the ways that caseworkers can support those relationships to go well um, and their sort of feedback about the support that they've received over time. So, yeah, we're needing to approach this in different ways, um, and I think that the the case study information we get and the interview data that we get from families and from children will help us kind of form these really rich pictures of what helps these relationships to go well, what happens when they get kind of wobbly and they need additional support, um, just to kind of keep those relationships going. Because they are complex. There's a lot of dynamics that are happening. And children are growing older. You know, a, a, a case plan, a child might enter care and two years old and a contact plan is made. And then what happens when they're 10 years old and what happens when they're 14 years old? Other things are happening in their lives and they want to see their friends and you know, having kind of regular contact might take them away from those, some of those things. They might feel resentful. So we have to kind of think about all these sort of relationships as emerging dynamics and the child as a sort of developing being and, and how things continue to be in their best interests. Yeah, amazing how many kind of moving pieces there, there would be in a problem like this. I mean, the families are evolving too and adults change as well and, you know, uh, the, the other relatives and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to come back to something that you you said at the beginning just then, um, the notion of action research. So you use that term and, you know, it's a term that uh, that's, that's used, I think, more and more often. Um, can you say more about what action research means to you and how it's what that exactly means in the context of your projects? The way that we are using... Um action research is we're using a particular methodology that's called the Breakthrough Series Collaborative um, that was developed in the United States. And it was first developed kind of in hospital settings to make small practice changes in a hospital setting that could improve client sort of outcomes of uh, patients. Um, then it was adapted for child protection and out-of-home care to kind of make small changes that could improve certain types of goals, like improve rates of recruitment for foster carers or um, sort of the supports that are offered for families. So we are, we are using that as the first time that it's been brought to Australia to, um, to use this particular methodology, which is premised on this idea of a um, plan, do, study, act cycle. So we have a session um, at the beginning of the project where we bring everybody together and we talk and, and we agree on principles for the project. And we have created a document um, that is kind of sets some guidelines for our project has some uh, themes and principles for us. So we have principles about um, cultural safety and sort of respect for Aboriginal kinship connections as being really critical. Uh, also trauma-informed practice and also reflection, reflective practice are sort of principles that we've woven into the project. Um, and then we have a menu of practices that the caseworkers could select from. Um, and they can also add to that menu. So it's sort of ideas about the kinds of things you can do that can strengthen these relationships. And then at that first session, we we kind of workshop and finish this document and talk to them about, well, what do you want to select in your local area? So the Wollongong team, the Dubbo team, the Sydney team, the 
uh, Newcastle team, what responds to your particular issues in your area? What practice do you want to trial there? So planning, that's the sort of planning stage. And then the doing is when they get out into the field and they've agreed upon this, this cycle. We were fortunate that many chose virtual visitation and supporting um, visits over Skype or Zoom or other means of maintaining those relationships. Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, yeah. At the very early stages, this was in sort of February, the writing was on the wall. So I was fortunate they kind of steered in that direction. Um, And so then the do part is sort of trialing out sort of different things. How do you make video, you know, sort of contact work, for example? How do you get a two-year-old to engage and they haven't seen dad for quite some time? What about on dad's side? Does he need some conversation starters with the young child? How can he make himself more you know, interesting to a child who's sort of running around in the room? Um, so it's doing it and then studying that. So that's where we have these reflections, uh, reflective monthly meetings where we talk to the caseworkers about, well, how did that go? Like, And do you need to tweak that in some way? And they, they're really working with each other about that because there are other people who are out in the field in their local site, trialing the same practice so they can learn from each other, p- troubleshoot what's happening, um, and then they can implement changes. So that's the act sort of as the end of that. And then it's the cycle that continues around. So we keep sort of doing the plan, do, study, act cycle. Um, and we have these learning sessions where we come together and present case studies. So these case studies that have emerged over time to say, you know, um, the, the action researcher, the caseworker has been trialing this, and this is the dynamics of the family, and this is how it went, this is where it went well, this is when it was challenging, this is how we would change it in the future. And then that gives us a set of practices that have been trialed in the local areas that we can then, we've developed resources as we go along, but then we can really prepare things so that after this project is finished, we have a suite of resources to say, if you want to do virtual visitation with your organization, here's some resources, here's some things you can do, here's some strategies, and kind of provide a sort of a set of materials around that. So that's that's the goal. So we'll have several of these learning sessions where we get together, we plan, and the cycle sort of starts over again. Yeah, well, that will be an amazingly useful resource for people to, to apply. Um, do you have trouble getting family members and, you know, members of the community who are dealing with these home visits and so forth, do you have trouble getting them to agree to to, to be part of this type of research? Well, we've had a lot of interest. Like, so, so far we've spoken to foster carers and kinship carers. Um, we'll be going out and talking to the families as well who are on the caseloads of the caseworkers. I mean, the caseworkers, I think, we're lucky that they're really amazing. They're really in this because they're dedicated to families. They come into this, you know, it's not for the money and glory. It's for the the importance of the work. And so we've been lucky to work with caseworkers who are really dedicated and want to lift their practice. And we also were working with partner organizations that see the importance of this work. Again, these fostering lifelong connections, trying to support these relationships with these children and to lift the quality of their practice in that space. Acknowledging it's just hard work. You know, every case is different. And so it can't but be a helpful process to kind of troubleshoot and try to improve practice about keeping these relationships, you know, for children. Um, so there have been challenges, and, and the caseworkers are very, very busy. And so um, they're our main kind of um, linchpin for the project, and so we have to support them and work with them and, and make this worth their while, I think, as well, that where they're getting professional development and they're getting sort of group reflection and connections to their colleagues. Um, well, I'm also thinking of the parents. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and whether they feel happy to to help you know essentially presumably they need to give permission we'll be going out to in the be field. involved that's right um, we'll be going out in the field to talk to them you know sort of we have our ethics under review at the moment so yeah and it is complex to have these relationships these conversations um, but we did some qualitative work prior to launching the big ARC uh, project and we did talk to to mothers whose children had been removed um, and to some children and to some carers and you know, in many ways, it's important. They, you know, these are people who want to hear have their stories told. It has to be done in a very careful and sensitive way. The way that we did it in that instance was using a particular methodology called body mapping, where um, a, sort of the person or the, the researcher laid down a, a full sort of their body was traced, and and the figure was created that they could then draw into or populate with sort of images in, in a collage style to talk about the experience of their relationships with their children and with the carers of their children. A lot of 
a lot comes up, you know, a lot of trauma comes up around the removal process of their child, you know, a lot of commonalities that we saw among the, the women that we spoke to of pain in the heart, you know, and just the idea of like people watching you and just sort of um, the, the, the great pain that's involved with this, but the importance of wanting to keep that relationship going with that child and that child being so important to them. So it's really critical for us to to talk to families and to understand because the professionals are facilitating these relationships, but these relationships are, they're the lives of the families that we're, that we're you know, working with and the children. So we need to understand their perspectives about how they think caseworkers can support those relationships as being our research question. So one thing I'd like to ask you about, you touched on uh, just a little bit before and it informs a lot of what you've been talking about and it's the notion of trauma. Um, and so just perhaps first to get you to clarify what's meant by the phrase trauma-informed approach. So that's, you know, in the, you used the term just before and, and in the, in the documentation of the, the, um, the project and the center, you, you have this idea of a trauma-informed approach. It clearly implies that trauma is part of all of these cases or most or many, I'm not sure. So it'd be interesting to know sort of how pervasive you think trauma is in the context of the work that you're doing. So can you just sort of first start by explaining what is a trauma-informed approach to the work you're doing? I think that we have to assume that everyone who's been touched by the child protection system has experienced trauma because the removal of a child in itself is a form of trauma for the child and for the family. Um, families are also grappling with a lot of other challenges when they come into involvement with child protection and they can relate to drug use, they can relate to domestic violence, they can relate to mental health issues. There are families who've had intergenerational involvement with the child protection system where the mom was herself a child in the child protection system, and that can be very triggering now to have your own child involved in that system. Um, and we also have, there's a over-representation of people who've, who have intellectual disability and, you know, are involved in this system. And it's, there's a lot of sort of challenges that people are encountering in their lives that bring child protection to their door and initiate this removal process. And the removal process is enormously tra traumatic in itself. So I think what we mean by trauma is, um, you know, having experienced uh, some kind of adverse experience that is almost um, f threatening on some kind of very fundamental level where you experience it as a kind of an existential threat. And I think that's what removal is, you know, for, for children, the the parent as the attachment figure is meant to protect you and being removed from that person is a, it triggers a lot in the child and their attachment system that who will protect you. If you're a baby, there's no one to protect you other than your parent, you know. And I, when I teach attachment, I talk about how, you know, bear will eat me if like the adult isn't there to take care of me. That's why we have this attachment system. That's why babies are so appealing and that's why we respond to them in the way we do. We want to keep them close and protect them. Um, so it's about survival, actually, those attachment relationships. So when they are, uh, when there's a separation in an attachment relationship between the parent and child, there's a very deep kind of sense of, of threat and harm that's happened. Um, so I think we have to be mindful that people have gone through that and that the systems um, can, can inadvertently sometimes re-traumatize children and families. So for example, you know, some families and children experience supervised contact where they have their visits and someone um, else is there um, transporting the child and then observing the contact visit. So for the child, you know, getting into a car with a stranger and this is a person from protective services? It's someone, yeah, but they, they could be a contact worker where their, their job is entirely about supervising contact. It might be someone they don't know. It could be someone that regularly does the supervision of the contact, but it could be someone different. Someone's coming along, picking you up, taking you to your family. That can really be triggering around just being taken away from the safe people who are your foster carers, your kinship carers. And for the parents in that situation, the people who are observing you, watching your parenting, you could feel judged. You can feel, you know, that those feelings around the process of child removal and the court process of um, out-of-home care. So there's a lot of things that are can really bring up the very deeply held experiences that, um, you know, people 
it's it's so there's so much pain there. It can be and it's really it can be very hard to articulate the kind of level of pain because it's such a fundamental level of sort of as I said this existential threat of this relationship that's been um, where there's been a separation. So I think we need to be careful and mindful of that in our practices that we're supporting to think about how how we can counter some of the ways that people can be re-traumatized and be sensitive to their trauma. So things like letting people have a voice in their experience and have some sense of control, that's kind of a way of countering trauma. If you feel like things are being done to you, that's a very, it's a great sense of powerlessness. So like, for example, can we involve children in making some choices around their visitation to give them back a sense of control? And that sort of can be a trauma-informed practice. So, I mean, the way that you laid it out um, is incredibly clear in terms of uh, you know, what the conditions of, of what you're referring to as trauma are and, and how you would deal with it. I'm interested maybe just to kind of continue for a moment in the meaning of the word trauma and I, perhaps it just doesn't matter at all to what you've, what you've just described since you, you know, you defined quite clearly what the issues were. Um, but I wanted to just talk for a moment about the changes in the meaning of that word, um, so in, in, in research on words of that kind that, you know, have, have been impl- applied in, in, in psychology in particular over the recent decades, that these words have all followed a similar trajectory where, you know, words like abuse, uh, trauma, bullying, they've followed a similar trajectory which is to kind of move away from a very physically grounded and quite narrow phenomenon to a much broader uh, kind of category of, of situations that are not all physically grounded but also include the kind of mental or the more subjective kind of uh, experience. And so I think trauma would be a classic case of that uh, where I think, you know, I was just kind of looking at the, at the material on it. And so in, the, in the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, you know, trauma was really before 1980, trauma was very much physical, you know, trauma in the classic sense of, uh, you know, you've had a road accident or something. Um, And then uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, came into the um, DSM and that, of course, is, you know, makes that step towards the psychological effects of, you know, a dangerous, threatening, you know, life-threatening situation. You know, you've been shot at or you've, you know, been involved in something like a, uh, a military conflict. And so, you know, that term has developed going in that direction to, to now where, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very much more about a subjective uh, experience, much more of a, of, a, of a psychological effect and so forth. So, um, you know, I was just interested to raise that in terms of the relevance of your work and see whether you think... So I don't... As I just commented before, I think you were very clear about what you would include in that category and it's, you know, it's clear that, that of what, you, what you're aiming at. But I wonder if you were doing this project 30 years ago, mm-hmm. would you have been using a different word or would you have not been really worrying so much about the things that you're now quite concerned about but which 30 years ago wouldn't have come under the mm-hmm. heading of trauma, if you know what I mean? Yeah, um, I think that there's been a greater recognition of of um, abuse and the outcomes of abuse and separation from families. You know, as I commented earlier, in my own learning around the kind of work we do, hearing from people who have been part of the stolen generations or affected by forced adoptions, it just makes you realize how much uh, that stays with people and deeply impacts their lives, you know. So, and I think we've realized that with, um, from other survivors of, sexual abuse and domestic violence and other areas that our understanding has really widened around the consequences of uh, particularly childhood um, adverse experiences. And there's been the research, the the ACEs research, um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Research Study, which was done in California um, with Kaiser, which is a a health management organization and therefore had access to tens of thousands of people was able to make this link between this questionnaire around had you experienced these kinds of things in your childhood 
sexual abuse, you know, separation of a parent going to prison, for example, or divorce or other, you know, physical violence in your family, and link that directly to, tr to health outcomes, you know, greater, ex you know, likelihood of hypertension, diabetes, other types of negative health consequences. And that link's clear. And that link is very clear. And that's been shown, that's, that's a very strong piece of, of research that's sort of shown that the, the kinds of trauma that we have, including these relational types of traumas, kind of sit in the body and, and um, manifest as sort of physical harms to us um, in our, and so these consequences. And we see that the consequences also to our emotional health and our psychological health and our ability to form our own relationships. So I think we're, we're recognizing now just how important that supporting those relationships are because that's, as a society, what are we other than people who are trying to have relationships with each other? They're trying to have their own children, they're trying to have romantic partners, they're trying to have friends. And all of those, their ability to have relationships is impacted by those early childhood experiences. And you know, research about attachment sort of shows that those early childhood attachments that people have, they, um, they almost sort of form a template in terms of the ability to have trust and trust in, your, in others and um, belief in yourself and sort of self-regard that you carry through other relationships, your peer relationships, your friendships, your romantic relationships, your parenting. And so when there has been kind of harm in those relationships or they've been broken, um, they can manifest in relationships later. And I think we all have seen that in terms of the way people play out their relational traumas as adults in terms of their relationships. So it just points to how f important it is to, to preserve these relationships to the extent possible. Now, these are children who are in out-of-home care where the court said they'll never go back to their families. So there already is a disruption there. We're not trying to get to perfect. We're just trying to get to as good as possible, you know. Um, and that's, but we know that they're going to always, in most cases, they're always going to want to have these relationships. They're going to want to know who these people are. Nothing's ever going to change that this is mom and dad and grandparents and siblings. Um, and keeping them away from apart from each other denies them a part of themselves. Yeah, so it's it's a real emphasis on getting a sense of people's experience and and you know their subjective experience of of what's happened rather than kind of looking on paper, uh, you know, at, at at basic descriptions or or statistics about what happens. Um, and so it it introduces an issue I wanted to kind of get into, which was the testimony, if you like, or the expertise, perhaps better, uh, the expertise of people who've been through this themselves. And so I was very interested to see, um, you know, in, in, in the centre you have uh, an expert reference group, you have a group uh, of experts who are, some of whom are, are academics and researchers and so forth, um, but some of whom are listed as experts by experience. Uh, and there was half a dozen or so people who had been, you know, had lived through the experiences that we've been talking about, um, either as parents or as children in the, um, in this whole sort of process. And they were then motivated to take part in the work that you're doing. So it, could you tell us more about this, the group of experts by experience that you're working with and, and how that's going and what it's bringing uh, to to the center's work. Yes, and that's part of the methodology that we're following is to have this expert reference group, which is composed of experts by profession. You know, as you mentioned, they they could be academics. So we have you know academics who are specialized in trauma, people who are in the court system, people who are in the child protection out of home care system, um, and then also people who are experts by experience. And those are moms who have experienced their children being removed and, and placed in in care. Uh, young people who've been in the care system themselves and carers of children, um, and and some of those people are also Aboriginal people. So we get that kind of perspective in terms of connection to culture. Uh, we're extraordinarily lucky. I think it's an, a very brave thing to want to take your experience and to use it to help other people, essentially. So I think that's what motivates our experts by experience is to say, I've had this life experience with all its challenges and... Um, want to help kind of distill from my experience and from people, others that they may know who've gone through it, to try to apply that to help guide our practices. So, um, and there's a lot of cross-learning that then happens, you know, that people can learn from each other in the group, as well as things that we learn to help 
change sort of the project we're doing. So they're, they're paid consultants on the project, um, and they're helping us sort of understand what are the what are the key things that we should be thinking about in terms of these practices that we're trialing, um, and also helping us to do other things that can relate to the resources we're, we're developing, like what about communication um, about family time or contact um, for young people who are in care or parents or carers? What kind of messages should we be sharing? You know, because some of the messages that are out there are adversarial. This assumption that you have to protect your rights and that there's going to be conflict. But how can we think about a message that's sort of authentic that that you agree on that we can get across? You know, in the materials that we prepare. So they're they're working with us on on these kinds of materials and um, thinking about our our practice menu in terms of what people can trial, and their role will evolve. So they will help us also with. Um, analyzing the data as that comes in, um, designing the data collection tools, and then the resources that we develop at the end of the project. And look, I think that just hearing from people's experiences, you just, it gives you insight into, well, of course that that doesn't work, or this is, this is why you would see this thing, you know, we've heard from the young people, um, for example, about their experiences of going to visits and um, forming these relationships with caseworkers and how, you know, the person who transported them in the car, often that was the best time for them to talk about their visit because it was sort of right after it happened um, and that they didn't have to make eye contact with that person there in the back seat. And so it helped us really think about how important that is for the debriefing practice we're trialing, which is about talking to children and to carers and parents about how the visit went, that, you know, that time in the car might be the time or or some other time that lets that child sort of use that time to decompress before they kind of go back home. So, um, yeah, it's it's an essential part of this project because, again, it's, you know, we also as researchers are doing this as professionals, but these are people who whose lives have been personally affected, and so they can give us that, that greater insight into how they would have wanted caseworkers to work with them, the great things caseworkers did in some instances, the negative things they may have done, how they were affected when there was a lot of turnover from caseworkers, just a lot of insights into what it feels like to be on the receiving end of these practices that we're trialing and evaluating. Do you find that it goes in both directions? So, you know, um, I, I can't I can't say for your field, obviously, but it, it's kind of reminiscent of a situation in my own field of linguistics where, you know, uh, many linguists work on languages that are not their own language. So, you know, I work on languages in... Laos in Southeast Asia where, you know, it's not my language. So I go into another community and I work with people and, you know, collect data and try to understand the, the language and its social context and so forth. But I'll never know the things that a native speaker knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's some debate around, you know, the adequacy and the appropriateness and the kind of how informed you can really be as a non-native speaker but perhaps most importantly, you know, what the involvement of native speakers should be. So people who, who are steeped in that culture, who've, who live it, who identify with it, who've grown up in it, you know, whether they should in fact be the ones who are, who are doing the analysis of, of the language. So from a research point of view, it, it, it raises this interesting question about rights uh, and duties around, you know, making claims about the domain as a researcher, you know. Uh, and I think that, you know, these are obviously raised many important questions we don't have time to get into now, but w- one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was, you know, of the, my view on this question in, in, the, in the language example is that, you know, the best thing is to combine the two. And the reason is that native speakers miss things that outsiders see just as, you know, they know things that outsiders don't know and can't know. And so it's really the combination of the different perspectives that's incredibly useful in the, in the research process. And sometimes obviously it leads to disagreement and people say, no, you have no idea, it's not like that, it's like this, or, you know, I see that as relating to this other thing and not what you said. So it's not necessarily always the case that one or another side of the, the you know, the people in this research collaboration has it right. And, you know, you might find yourself disagreeing or walking away and not being satisfied with the other side's version of events. So I was quite interested to know in your work, 
together with experts by experience, you know, do you find that you, the way you painted it earlier it sounded like, you know, it was this wonderful collaborative experience where everybody benefits. I wonder if that's always the case though. Do you not find that there are some tensions and there are some, you know, differences of opinion and, you know, differences in belief and perhaps also in rights to, to make certain claims about what's happening in the situations that you're, that you're researching and so on. So um, I'd be quite interested to hear your comments on that. Yeah, look, I think it's been really it created a dynamic in terms of having those dialogues and even where there is disagreement just points us to a space where we should be looking deeper, I think. I think we're trying to have a parallel process here too in terms of this is relationship-based practices that we're trying to develop, uh, relationship-strengthening practices. So we have to be very careful about the relationships we have with, with all of our experts, um, you know, and particularly with experts by experience that we've sort of matched them up to uh, one of the members of the research team as well as having a particular person who's assigned to kind of support them and to debrief with them and see if things come up with them, you know, for them because it may well and um, these are sensitive issues and and to to cater to them knowing that they're working for us for a few hours, but they've got lives and other things that are going on for them. So um, there have, you know, there are times when you have conflict, but then I think just the process of people being dedicated to coming back to it if they think it's worthwhile. And that's what relationships are like too. They don't go smoothly. Any relationship's going to have some conflict. So it's about how you kind of iron out that conflict. Um, but in terms of making claims, I think that you have to have those voices in there but I think it is important also to have the perspectives of people who come to it as professionals, as the other part of our expert reference group, because they're the ones who are in the court system and they're in the child protection system and they know how that process works. And then we as researchers bring a different lens to it because we're trying to look, how can we distill this out? What are the kind of generalizations we can make about this? And how can we develop something that can be um, used in different contexts? Like I have an experience, um, I've been part of research as a as a person who's um, the parent of a child with autism, for example, you know, and so I've got that particular type of lived experience and I've been on the end of being a research participant, you know, and being part of other people's studies. And I wouldn't say that I could step into that space and do all the research. It probably would bring up a lot of things for me that were really difficult and I would have a harder time um, holding some distance on it. So I think that, you know, not not having had that same level of personal experience on this issue, it gives us that bit of distance. Um, but but also knowing that, you know, it brings in these other elements that are really important. So it's just part of the mix. Well, I think your centre and your projects are just a fantastic example of the collaboration of very different approaches, you know, not only different disciplines, but community engagement, academia and government. It's, it's amazing to see and incredibly inspiring to me. Um, so I think we'll leave it there and it's just been great to hear about it. I look very much forward to seeing how the work with the Fostering Lifelong Connections project uh, works out and, and, and the future of the centre as well. So Amy, thanks very much for coming and talking to me today. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.